podcast starts. Hello everyone, if this is your first time listening to the show, then welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back and thanks for sticking with us. This is a podcast that talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about, just because that's who we are. This is Halloween week. Happy Halloween in advance if you're listening to this on the day of release. And we're going to be releasing the latest in our series of Halloween retrospective reviews. This uh, episode is going to be about Halloween H2O 20 years later from 1998. And on that discussion, I will be joined by our occasional co-host Howard and our and guest Luke Richards, who's returned from the last Halloween review. However, right now... I'm joined by two other delightful people. We have a number of hosts who vary every week, but I'm Dan, also known as T.D. Velasquez. I'm in Greater Manchester, and today I have the great pleasure of being joined after a bit of an absence by... Kirsty Worrow in deepest, darkest Shropshire. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> and also, after a, after a slightly shorter absence... Stella Gaynor in not quite so dark, but still pretty grey Manchester. Uh, it's it's pretty dark and and grey and drizzly where I am. I I there's a computer shop round the corner and I need to go to them because I've got a fault with one of my USB drives. But then I looked out the window and just thought, nah. nah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it's so lovely to have you both back on the podcast. It's uh, it feels like ages since we've all been here together ages doing this in our traditional afternoony way. Yeah. Um, even though you know you, you you've both been on the show um, separately and things you know regularly, but the last few weeks have been very strange, uh, <laughs> and with all the Grimfest hoopla and all that. Yeah. Um, but it's it's so fantastic to be back here. How are you both? Kirsty, you go first. Um, I'm good, thank you. Um, it's life is you know kind of darker and colder mm. um, at the moment. It was my oh, sure. um, son's birthday fifth. Uh, fifth birthday yesterday wow so it was nice had lots of cake oh. too much sugar etc um work's been um interesting you know back to face-to-face teaching um which i have missed and i just finished introducing my second year students to um the cabinet of dr caligari oh wow which they approached with a kind of oh what is this it is so old why do i even need to bother and most of them by the end of it particularly the horror fans are like this has just become my favorite film oh that's um, fantastic it's been really lovely yeah so that's been good and yeah and i've uh, a couple of other bits i've been writing about the witcher for a book on female villains and i've got just um found out i'm gonna have another article one i've written on tanis published in media magazine so that's all good that's fantastic so yeah all right, nice. brilliant. How about you, Stella? What have you been up to? Well, I've gone back to teaching as well, but it's not been face-to-face. I've been doing it all online, so um, it's been tricky figuring out how to get it to work, really, not, and not just like the software, so just getting students to engage online, um, getting them to switch their mics on and switch their cameras on is a bit tricky, and it, you know, it's fair enough if they don't want to do it. But I think, where are we now? Week five, I feel like we've settled down into it now. And it is working. I've done one face-to-face session. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. And that was very odd being in the university when it was so empty. Um, 
So that was a bit weird. And all the students were just sort of scattered around this enormous lecture room and they're very far away from me. I couldn't sort of walk among them and talk to them and stuff. It felt a bit mm. bit disjointed, but it was really nice to go in. Though I was disappointed that the Salford or the Soul Food Cafe was uh, <laughs> not doing any baked goods. So there was no vegan sausage rolls. I was very, very oh. disappointed <laughs> about that. Is um, that the cafe that we met in one time? Yeah, so there's one at the Media City one as well. But yeah, soul food, excellent pun. But no baked goods. What else is going on? Um, I've been doing lots of work. <laughs> Just been work, 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 really. It feels like, because everything's gone online, because I have more to do, which is good, because I think certainly doing, throughout the worst bit of lockdown, I was feeling a bit and you're just sort of rattling around your house and not with not much to do. So it's quite nice to be busy and to have to have a, a schedule to the week as well. That's been nice. Do this on Monday, this on Tuesday, this on Wednesday, rather than mm. everything just feeling the same like it did. So I have definitely enjoyed going back to work and a routine and a schedule and having things to do and stuff. It's been definitely been better for me, even though I'm knackered. I'm looking forward to production week next week where I've got no teaching. I'm looking forward to it, but <laughs> it's been good to do something close to normal i suppose mm. yeah sure so things are not quite like you know the the media kind of makes out in terms of you're not yet sort of in the middle of neil marshall's doomsday for example <laughs> no i don't think so behind, behind a wall no it's all right i mean there's definitely there's some good points to teaching online that you know the weather's horrific today and i don't have to go outside so that's nice yeah. um but i do worry that the quieter students are not speaking up very much because it's much easier if you're shy to hide yeah. behind the little black screen and to never turn your mic on and to never turn your camera on. So yeah. we do have yeah. the concern that some of the shyer, perhaps more anxious students might get a bit left behind. So we're doing as much as we can to sort of try and speak to them all individually at least at least once, if not more, every few weeks so that we're staying in touch with them all. But yeah. Thinking. I think it's, we say, we're at week five and there's not been any major disasters as yet. Well, you know, apart from the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, no new, no new major disasters. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Kirsty, how about you in terms of going back into the, um, the college and, and teaching face to face? How's that been? Um Yeah, it's, it's been, it's been interesting. I mean, I'm, I like all of our teaching is face to face. That's how right. it is. So, you know, um, uh, that initially felt a bit scary because obviously, you know, um, we hadn't been doing that for a while. Um, but actually, uh, yeah, I realised that I missed it mm. and, and it, it helps me feel like we're a bit more normal. We have um, slightly different timetables. So it's, I would imagine sort of slightly more university style timetable where students are essentially in for big, these big blocks. Yeah of time rather than kind of shorter lessons which is is great for film i think because it means you can really get in to you know kind of some discussion rather than you know warm them up mm. have a bit of discussion and then then it's the end yeah of the then it's been 50 um, minutes and it's so <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. so yeah it's the additional kind of workload of um but you also have to provide for students who aren't physically in the room for obviously variety of obvious reasons mm. um that's a bit more onerous but you know i think it's probably better than than not you know than doing it online i think i'd i'd rather be in my position than your position Stella, yeah say so. well, because when i but, did you know that might change at any point <laughs> well that's it i think 
so for all of our production staff, they're kind of, I think they're feeling all the time that they're just on the edge of this precipice where everything just might change overnight and suddenly everything has to go online. So there's a lot of sort of double prep going on. So every week they need to be ready for in case everything goes online, in case everything changes, we mm. need to be prepped in two different ways. Um, and then so I said I did one face to face session. And in the week or so before it, I was I was pretty nervous about it and a bit anxious about it. And I was, I was after I did it, I was I felt really glad that I'd gone in and I'd seen two other members of staff and that was really nice and it was nice to be back in the building. And then afterwards and I came home and you know, I was back online the next day, I was a bit oh just really cemented how much I do miss going into work. Yeah. Which is there's a thing I never thought you'd say, but I miss all the aspects <laughs> of it, you know, the teaching and the students and being in the building and saying hello to the guy on the front desk and being in the office and you know yeah it's it's weird and it's oh. funny how all of those little things apart from the actual job itself are just really important and when they've gone it's a bit bit sad but hopefully you know we're I think we're aiming I'll be online again next semester after Christmas that's just you know it is you'll be still online there's no way we'll be back so I'm hoping I'll be back face to face next September fingers yeah. crossed fingers crossed oh. Yeah. You're doing sterling work, both of you. You're you're part of the <laughs> of the force of people who are keeping this country turning over. And, you know, so am I in a small way. <laughs> you are. I thought you were working for the NHS. <laughs> uh, I do, but I'm not like a frontline worker or anything. But yes, I make a, a small contribution to keeping things ticking over. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Um, all power to us. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're all fist bumping here for the listeners. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yay webcam. Uh, anyway. Um, so you didn't mention Stella. One thing that's recently happened to you that I thought you might, which happened <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. As we it sounds record. ominous, doesn't it? <laughs> just, you know, say up front that sounds exciting and ominous and uh, i'm not pregnant it's something else it <laughs> uh, i did <laughs> i chaired a, a round table last night that was called um this deserted studio and it was about ghost watch so we had four amazing panelists from uh, the world of academia it was amazing i was uh, there kate egan dr yeah let me try and remember their names now so dr kate egan dr shelley mcmurdo dr stacy abbott and dr Derek johnson um, and I was the chair, and chairing a panel face to face is different to how it was last night. So it's just, you know, that they had to wait for me to let them speak, whereas normally everyone just sort of chats, and it's a lot more sort of natural. So last night it mm. did feel a bit uh, strained at sometimes, but it went really well. And um, there's a link because we recorded it. So if listeners are interested, then we can put the link in the in the blog. Oh, we certainly it will. Yeah. Good. Yeah. No, it was fantastic, and there were some really interesting questions that came up from the, um, I was going to say, well, from the audience, essentially, that that, that came mm. up in the Zoom chat and that you then put to the panel and got some really interesting answers out of it. Uh, there's, I certainly not thought much about Ghostwatch from a class point of view before. No, me neither. So, it was really um, interesting. Yeah, yeah definitely. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it's only about a year or so since I watched it, but I feel like watching it again. But that's mm. probably something I feel like quite often. But no, it's really good. <laughs> so I would strongly recommend listeners to check that out, and we'll we'll put that link up there. 
And of course, we should just mention that this Saturday is the 28th anniversary of the transmission of Ghostwatch, only the fourth Halloween night since Ghostwatch was transmitted to take place on a Saturday. And at 9pm, it will be the 10th annual National Seance, a watch-along, an online watch-along of Ghostwatch at the time it was originally broadcast. Um, And we'll put a link in the show notes so that you can join in on Facebook and through the Ghostwatch Behind the Curtains website. Have we got any other news that we'd like to talk about before we go on to the main body of the episode? I guess not. Um, I well, the silence. Although, 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 actually, you know, it is the Halloween episode. So, you know, as 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 the this this podcast's kind of resident pagan, I'd just like to wish you both uh, a happy Samhain. Oh, thank, thank you. you very um, much. Um, That's whatever you're doing on 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 Saturday. Or obviously, trick or treating is not the thing that it would normally be. But you know. No. Some people still putting sweets outside, so that's nice. I mean, I I haven't. Um, um, I haven't exactly planned it yet. Um, I, I, I think I've basically decided to just do the the thing that I'd like to do every Halloween, which is just watch lots of horror. Somehow I didn't do it last year. I had, I actually went to Sainsbury's and bought a stack of DVDs because they were very cheap that day. And it's like, well, and one of them was The Haunting. Um, and I thought, oh, I can watch all these, but then never watched any of them and still haven't. So this this year I've so. I've gone to make up for it by watching as much stuff as I can all week. Halloween lasts a week this year for me. So um, cool. Uh, every night I'm watching this something, and I'm halfway through the <laughs> the haunting of Hill House at the moment. I'm watching an episode every night. So how are you finding um, it? Ah, uh, great so far. And you know, I mean, I've already seen the first episode. Um, it's. Uh, it's, it's tense and um, scary, and I like the characters. Um, I don't really know where it's going. Um, probably nowhere good. I can't remember. <laughs> I've not. I, I've not read the novel, and I can't remember the original film that well. But it seemed. But if the novel is like the film, then the series is very, very different. So therefore, I don't really know where it's going. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, but I'm enjoying it. So I and. That was Ian's suggestion when I just said to him, uh, oh, I can't see myself just finding eight hours to sit down and watch The Haunting of Hill House. And he went, well, why don't you just watch it one episode a night for a week? I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so oh, yeah. that's what I'm doing. Um, that's, that's what you're doing? Yeah. Cool. So, Stella, have you seen Bly? Do you know what? I started it and I turned it off after yeah. 20 minutes because that little girl makes me want to punch the television. <laughs> and I'd obviously... You don't. You didn't find her perfectly splendid. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Obviously, you know, I'm a. I would consider myself a nice person. I'm also a mother, yes. so I don't really want to see any children hurt. But for God's sake, is she gonna die? Uh, well, I've seen all of it. <laughs> uh, Does she shut right. up? Moderately, occasionally. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't seen it. Is she Flora? Yes. So. Yes, okay. She All also right. the, the actress was also the voice of Peppa Pig as well. So you know. Really? All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah. No. It was. That's I mean, I, my kind of general assessment of it is that uh, I mean, I I didn't like. Lots of people were 
didn't like the accents. There were some, you know, people doing accents that which were not their own. Um, and lots of people took, yeah, <laughs> took exception to that. I didn't mind it too much. It wasn't anywhere near as creepy or as atmospheric, any, like anywhere near as, as kind of affecting as uh, Hill House. Um, mm. But, you know, it was kind of, I think it did some interesting things with, you know, kind of telling stories from sort of, uh, telling ghost stories from slightly different um, positions than the ones we're used to, I think. And, yeah. Yeah. So, it's, you know, if you can get over the small <laughs> trouble. Because I loved Hill House, yeah. and you know yeah, I, yeah, yeah, how yeah. much I absolutely adored yeah. it. And then I was like, full, you know, proper rub, hand rubbing with glee, mm. settling down on the sofa, glass of wine, some snacks. Owen was doing something else. Ema had just been bought a new laptop, so she she was surgically oh, attached yeah. to that. And I was like, right, I'm going to watch Blind Manor, and it's going to be lovely. And after 20 minutes, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't dear. watch this. And I had to turn it off. And I started watching instead um, Ratched. Okay. Oh, Sarah yeah. Paulson in it, and that's brilliant. Yeah, I want to watch that. It's, oh, okay. It's not I as thought that'd be not quite as gripping as um, not quite as gripping as American horror stories are, and not quite as horrifying as well. But it just looks beautiful, and all the acting is amazing. So yeah, I'd recommend okay. that, Thank even you. though this isn't okay. the recommendation part of the no. episode. <laughs> well, no, but I, I think I think possibly you've been karmically punished, Stella, because I think you recommended <laughs> Bly Manor the other week, having not seen it yet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So this is what happens to you as a result. Yeah. You I see. take it back. <laughs> I take it back. Oh dear. Um, I've just got. My, I don't really have any major news before we go into the main part of the podcast. Though I just want to mention a slight piece of news that um, just I, I want to commemorate. I seem to have reached the age where some algorithm in Facebook has worked out that I'm probably a single nerdy guy and therefore I get friend requests from non-existent women quite often and <laughs> um, and I just obviously just leave them there but uh, the, the latest one gets an award for the best name this apparent person is called Endurance Favour <laughs> like she sounds like a, a porn star or a Bond girl. One, one of the. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, favor, yeah. Or a terrible but the cocktail. F- favor's good, but it's like the first name's endurance. I mean, that's not <laughs> terribly attractive. That's just so bizarre. I mean, you know, that's like if she was a mountaineer, maybe she is. Maybe I'm stereotyping this non-existent person. She could be all kinds <laughs> of things. Um, but I just thought I'd mention that. What if she's real? Yeah, if, if she's, she's listening. Well, yeah, exactly. And she's listening. We're, we're really sorry, Endurance. I'm sorry about that, Endurance, yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll, I promise I'll get back to your friend request. I, do, I have no idea how you know who I am, but, um, you know, yeah. Oh, yes, I'm, Maybe she's a big feel, fan of the show. I feel bad now. That's, you, you, you never know. I think she Might could have just, just come off anti-fan. <laughs> Well, Endurance, just keep it to Twitter, all right? Twitter's where people have fights. Let's keep it off Facebook. So Um, so that's my my exciting news. All right, so uh, on that note, let's hand over to the past version of myself and Howard and Luke talking about Halloween H2O two years ago. And for the only time in this whole series of Halloween reviews, do I feel that this podcast is well-timed because it is actually going to come out the day before Halloween, <laughs> even if it is two years after it was recorded. <laughs> so, um, 
So on that note, let's hand over. Stella and Kirsty and I will be back at the end with some recommendations. Today we are going to be talking about 1998's Halloween H2O, 20 years later. I am your co-host Dan. And I am your co-host Howie. And we are delighted once again, following Mm -hmm. uh, our previous podcast on Halloween, the guest Michael Myers, to welcome the wonderful Luke. Hello. Hello Luke. Luke. Hello. Thank you for being once again our special It's like you've never been away. I know, it's just like we just did this five minutes later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's, it's uncanny, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's, a, a, it's actually been several weeks. It's been a oh, long time. Wow. So, I've been, I've well, been too. It makes, well, at least it makes more sense than the previous Halloween film. So. Huh. Possibly, possibly, <laughs> we'll find out. So, uh, what I normally do at this point is to ask all of uh, the people involved in the podcast how they first encountered this movie I know from what you told us in the previous episode Luke mm-hmm. that actually Halloween H2O was your first yeah so Halloween H2O was the was my introduction to Michael Myers and the Halloween franchise itself and it's the one that's always like been in the back of my mind it's the, it's the one I can remember instantly and I you know I do appreciate the film as well and I see it from both film viewers point of view as well as a fans point of view of the Halloween franchise. So how old were you when you saw the film? Um, so what I would call, I remember it was on Channel 4 and it was like, you know, the 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock showing. So I think I was about, about 8 or 9 years old when I saw it. Wow, okay. So it was one of those films that you were not supposed to watch when you're young, but at the time, you know, I was I snuck downstairs, I turned the TV on and lo and behold it was on and I remember the image clearly the Michael Myers and the twist and some of the deep themes that at the time I didn't understand but looking back now I'm like oh okay so it just comes to me it's just you know it's one of the films that I saw first that introduced me to Michael Myers the first film that scared that made me scared of the shape and to be honest it's one of those films that I've got sort of a love love-hate attraction to. Oh, okay, that'll be interesting to get into that then. So it sounds like you've probably seen it quite a lot, and did you re-watch it in preparation? Um, yeah, so I watched it again um, just a few weeks ago before it came on, and it's, to me, Halloween H2O is like the film that John, that originally should be in the normal timeline, so you got Halloween 1, Halloween 2, then Halloween H2O, and also we know that obviously it didn't go that way. We had Season of the Witch and then four to six, uh, which we've all spoken in detail about. But sure. to me, um, Halloween H2O is the rightful sequel to um, Halloween 1 and 2. That's interesting. It's interesting that you feel that way about it, having come to it first and then going back and discovering Halloween 1 and 2. But I can sort of see, if you watch Halloween H2O first, and then look at the earlier Halloween films, it's clear that Halloween 1 and 2 kind of feed into H2O, and mm-hmm. the others don't. Um, so, so that makes sense to me. Um, I will say that I was at Sixth Form College when this movie came out in the cinema, and I was very excited. 
because I was just old enough to, to be able to go and watch him. Um, and I'd, it, it had been two years since I became a Halloween fan and saw by seeing Halloween for the first time. And that felt like an eternity when I was in my teenage years. So it felt like I'd been waiting forever for a good Halloween sequel and I was really looking forward to it. I saw it twice at the cinema, I saw it on video, I later saw it on TV and I also rewatched it a few weeks ago for this podcast. Actually I rewatched it in a triple bill with Halloween and Halloween 2 and found that it kind of makes great sense as a trilogy. It's quite satisfying I think. Um, but we'll get into the minutiae of it. How about you, Howard? Well, I remember seeing this because I was at university when um, this film came out, and uh, which is a very wonderful time in my life. And I didn't—we didn't see it at the cinema, which is surprising, really, because we did—we did go to the cinema a lot. But somebody bought it on video as soon as it came out on video, and we watched it. I think we watched it as a as a house, as a group, because we were all like big fans. I mean, it was, it was a big thing at the time. This film, I do remember. Well, among, amongst us, anyway, amongst. Halloween fans. It was like really exciting. They were making another mm. Halloween film with Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm. Um, I think I saw this one before I saw Four, Five, and Six. I, I only see them in the last ten years or so. Um, so <clears throat> I remembered Halloween and Halloween Two, and this seemed very much part of that. But I do remember it being getting a lot of publicity, and there was a lot of talk about it, and it was great. And I watched it, and I, I really, enjoyed, I thought it was. I mean, it, it is a sequel. You have to. Say this before, sequels are kind of limited by what they can do. But I think it's a very superior sequel. I think it's a very well made sequel. And Jamie Lee, who was coming back to it after 17 years since Halloween 2 and become a big star in Trading Places and Fish Called Wonder and stuff. Uh, and it was interesting that she now felt comfortable going back to the horror genre. Because she'd been like a. She got typecast in horror films when her career started. She did Prom Night and Terror Train and all that sort of stuff. So then when she sort of broke out and started doing other films, she kind of stayed away from the horror genre, and it was interesting, I think, that she felt comfortable now going back to it, uh, and felt free of that sort of typecasting. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think it's a good, and it's the first Halloween film without Donald Pleasance, which is, uh, although somebody does a not very good impression of him oh. at the <laughs> beginning of the film, and yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Okay, so um, it was a big thing, and I think that... You, in order to understand that, you kind of got to understand the situation that cinema was in at the time and the, and the franchise was in. Um, as we described in the previous episode, Halloween 6 it was a very controversial movie, but it made a lot of money. There, because it made that much money, there would definitely be a sequel to it. But Donald Pleasance had died, fans weren't necessarily keen to have a sequel which followed the plot threads which had been set up and partially explored in 6. And also, the franchise was now being produced and released by Dimension Films, Mm. um, which was a subsidiary of Miramax. And that company in 1996 also released another horror film. It was called Scream. Well, it's interesting, yeah, we'll come on to it. Well, I think we really need to talk about Scream, because Scream is the movie which most affected this movie. Yes, I think this, watching this film, it is... Scream came out and was a massive success, we all know this. And I love Scream, it's one of my favourites. In fact, I love all the first three Scream films anyway, the fourth one wasn't so good. Um, but I, did, I thought Scream really reinvigorated the genre, it was really great. People go on about it being postmodern, ironic, that sort of thing. That may be true, but essentially it's a really great horror film and it's a really great slash film with a really good cast and really good director and really well made. Uh, and Scream, yes, kind of revitalised the genre and suddenly there's a lot of other slasher films coming out, Urban Legend, 
I know we did last summer, Valentine, all these sort of things. Mm. Um, people realise there's money to be made out of it, and some bright sparks there, but why don't we go back to the first kind of official slasher film, Halloween, and let's do a sequel to that. But Halloween H2O, or Halloween 7, to me is very much informed by Scream. It's very much in the style of Scream. Yeah. It's sassier, it's smarter, it's more knowing, it's, uh, it's slicker, yes. it's kind of, it's got a bigger budget. It's, and there's all little things in it, sort of like, and like, for instance, like when Janet Lee goes to a car and you hear the psycho music. You wouldn't have had that in the early days. You wouldn't it's have it's had the that. the same car as well. Yeah, it's the yeah. same car from Psycho, yeah. And it's Janet yeah. Lee's last film, so it's like. There's that attention to detail in it, which you, we're talking about a franchise where two movies ago, in the last two films, The House, which is the main setting of both of them, was two different houses. And now you have a movie where there's that attention to detail, where they get the right car. Well, they do things like bring back actors like Nancy Stevens, who is not at all a well-known actor, but she was in Halloween, Halloween 2, and they bring her back in H2O, and, um, and it's great to see her, and they do things like, you know, they use the Mr. Sandman music yeah. and things like that. But I think, let's just take a moment to understand what kind of movie Scream was. It's weird to me to think that the original Scream and Halloween 6 came out months apart. They're so close together. But in terms of feel and attitude to the genre, they feel like they're from different planets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Halloween 6 is kind of directionless. It hasn't really got an idea of what, what, what it's, where its material kind of belongs in the time that it's being made in. But whereas Scream, it knows that it's referencing and drawing from those slasher movies of the 70s and 80s you know there is a direct quote from Halloween in the first scene of Scream somebody says go down the street to the Mackenzie's house you know direct quote from Laurie Strode from the end of Halloween um, but it goes on to tell its own story which um, is basically a, sl- a slasher movie in which characters various characters are kind of sin illiterate and they're able to make jokes about the, the tropes of slasher movies, the cliches. They even um, use um, Halloween in Scream as well, because it's the one that J.B. Kennedy uses to explain, the, like you said, the three rules of a horror slasher film. Yeah, the uh, I'll be right back rule. I'll be right back, you can't have sex. And um, isn't Halloween on the telly? The yeah, that's, yeah, yeah well, that's, so. that's the film he uses as the example. <clears throat> yeah, um, so, and, and also Halloween, to me that feels kind of in, in tradition, because the original Halloween was characters were watching horror movies in that movie mm-hmm. you know they were it wasn't dissecting the cliches but it was always kind of a little bit playful around that kind of thing uh, playful around what those kind of movies could feature and would feature um, Scream did that and it subverted some of those cliches it did things like it had characters verbally express how um, slasher movies are stupid because you get that heroines always do things like running up the stairs instead of going out the front door and it, like immediately after the scene where Nev Campbell's character says that she is attacked in her house and she tries to go out the front door but the killer blocks it so she has to run up the stairs <laughs> so it's like it takes the cliches and uses them to ramp up the tension but and also create laughs at the same time you know um and it was phenomenally successful because it was so assured. And that, I think we should say that Wes Craven directed it. Obviously, Wes Craven, uh, the director of Nightmare on Elm Street and The Hills Have Eyes and 
Last House on the Left and loads of other horror films, some really significant horror films, and who had an intimate connection to the slasher genre. He uh, he knew, I think, that he was making a movie that commented on the kind of movies he used to make. He was perfectly in a position to um, to explore that in a really robust way, and I think he probably made a better job of it than, say, John Carpenter would have done at the yeah. same time. Um, he, he, I think, possibly because he was more in tune with. Yeah current cinematic sensibilities um, and because it did all these things and it did it all so well and it did it with the backing of Miramax and it had a, a bit of a bigger budget I think it was a huge success mm-hmm. well Wes Craven had like previous experience with um, meta filmmaking because he did a new nightmare yes I've never seen that yeah it's it's weird because it's a film that that knows it's it's meta but at the same time it uses it to tell that story so the lead actress has to become Nancy in order to fight Freddy, who's entering the real world. That's, I think that's a great I've idea. I've never seen that either, so... so because I think cause at that time, Wes Craven was tired of how Freddy was being made like a, like a comedy character now. And so with New Nightmare, it was taking a well-known property that he created, reboot, rebranding it, and, you know, that's why Freddy has this new look, and, you know, it... It's a film that nudges and winks to its past as well as its present, and it really does well. I think that's he took elements of that from New Nightmare, and he tried, and he took that into Scream, as well as the writing from Kevin Williamson, who wrote um, both. I think did he write all three Scream films, or was it just the first? Two? I think he wrote the first two. First and the fourth, two, yeah. first two and the fourth. Oh, one. The fourth and it wasn't one, available yeah. to write the third. Yeah, so he, he obviously, both of them come together to create Scream, and funny enough, it was Kevin who came up with the idea for Halloween H2O. Yes, and he's credited as executive producer on the movie, which is produced, again, through Dimension Films, and is very much kind of aimed at the, the Scream market, and I think... Because of the success of Scream, they knew they could afford to spend a bit more money on it, uh, Halloween H2O has a noticeably bigger budget. Mm. Um, I don't know how much of the extra budget... Sorry, I'm just comparing it. It had a budget of $17 million mm. um, compared to Halloween The Curse of Michael Myers's budget of $5 million. Well, I think that's the thing. Halloween 6 and, and the other Halloween films are being made for a very specific demographic. They're being made for Halloween fans and not really anybody else. Whereas Halloween H2O is being made for the general audience. You get that? It's a bigger film in every sense. It's a popular film. It's a mainstream film. Like Scream was. You know, Scream, uh, it, was a, it was a big film. It's got a very trendy cast for the, some of the most popular TV stars from yeah. some of the most popular. You've got yeah. Courtney Cox and Eve Campbell and all these people. And, so. um, and uh, Halloween H2O did that as well. And Michelle Williams, was she on a... She was Dawson's Creek. Creek. Dawson's Creek. Creek. So you've yeah. got that. It's the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of feel to it. Same kind of cast. Rather than the sort of like the unknowns that you'd had in the plus they've got ones. they've got Jamie Lee Curtis. And got, I'm not sure how much of the increased budget went on her feet, um, but well, she's worth it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you know she's a genuine movie star. Yeah, she was. She raised the profile of the whole thing. Um, intriguingly, um, apparently, she generated the idea of the, of the sequel. Um, yeah, she wanted to get back with John Carpenter and do another Halloween film because yeah. I think you know with the last one they did together I don't know if it was The Fog or 
Um, it was, that was the frog was the last one she appeared on screen in, but she does voices in Escape from New York, Halloween Three, and mm. Escape from LA. So she's obviously always kept in touch. And I think they're mates. They're good mates. I think that time they just she said to him, you know, let's work together again. Let's let's go back. Let's do Halloween. Let's go back to the well and see what we do now because. After the scream, you know, it was like adrenaline shot to the mm. slasher shot. It was absolutely completely revitalised it and completely, and in a great way. And it, Scream deserved to be a success because it, it is a really terrific film. And yeah, you can say all about how knowing it is and ironic it is, and all the characters know about horror films and everything. But essentially, it's just a really great horror film, and it's a really great who done it as well. Really That's what is. I like about it, it is yeah. that when the, the murderer in all three of them, when the murderers are identified, I didn't know it was them. I, I saw Scream even in the third one. <laughs> The third one was the one... Actually, the third one is my favourite. Oh, right. Yeah. I think it's because it's set in Hollywood and because it's, it's got that sort of feel to it. But um, I really didn't guess who right. it was. Well, I didn't get. I saw Halloween... Uh, I saw Scream 2 before I saw Scream. So I think, well... And I think in Scream 2, they say who the murderers are. So when I watched Scream, I thought, well, I think it's, I think it's those two. But I'm not entirely sure. But certainly in the second and the third one, I, I had no idea who it was. I think Scream 2 does a good job of uh, repeating the whodunit, keeping you guessing. Mm. Scream 3 less so, but this isn't a Scream franchise podcast. I think it's interesting though about Scream is that it is a whodunit, and Urban Legend is a whodunit, and some of the others, like Cherry Falls, are whodunit, whereas all the Halloweens and Friday the 13th, we know who the killer is, Mm -hmm. right from the beginning, there's no mystery to that, it's Michael Myers, it's Jason, and that character's established, so that... Element is not there, and I think that when it's a whodunit, that forces just by genre that forces the writing of the film to focus the audience more on the characters. Yes, because you don't know who the killer is, so mm-hmm. you're paying more attention to the characters. Any one of them could be uh, good or evil, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and possibly that's I think that's definitely one of the reasons why, um, and one of the reasons why Scream is very strong because you know who all the characters are. Mm. Yes, and therefore, they are strong characters played by really good actors. Yeah, and when the, therefore when the reveal comes about who the killer is, it's, it's a real surprise. It's very very well done. Mm. If there's anyone listening to this who's not seen Scream, <laughs> do go and watch Scream. Do definitely do, do go. See all Scream. See the first three. One first three. Keep four. Oh, We're only watch four as well. Four, 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 four. Just good attempts. I quite liked four. Yeah. And you know what? If Apparently the original plan was to that four would be the start of a new trilogy. Yeah. And I would have watched five and six. I would have. Well. I think that's why they turned it into a TV series afterwards on Netflix. But the TV series is a remake. It's not. A oh, is it a remake? Oh. Um, I think so. I mean, it's it's a bit like the TV series of Fargo. It's um, it? it's almost a different story. But it's sufficiently close to the original oh, that, right. that you can't. Because like with Fargo, I initially thought this isn't a remake. It's just kind of another story set vaguely in the same you know milieu. Yeah. Really. But apparently, a friend of mine who's seen more of it than I did said no. It's definitely a remake. Things happen later in it that you know couldn't happen twice in the same universe. Well, I only started getting into Fargo when uh, the TV series when you see when the one of the characters finds the red. Glass scraper where Steve Buscemi hit the money. Oh, does that happen? Yeah, in that's because when I originally watched Fargo, um, the TV show, I thought, oh my god, they've 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 ruined it, and it wasn't. And I was still calm. I was still watching it, and then when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, so it's it's in the same universe. It's not a remake. It's just a continuation of a different story in this universe. 
Right. I love Fargo. The film. I've never seen the TV series, but I love Fargo. I have seen a few episodes of the TV series. It's very good. The film's great as well, obviously. The film is amazing. If they are really set in the same universe, um, they do both revolve around different pregnant police ladies. Well, they're very fertile. That one's nice in Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota, yeah. Um, So, yeah, after the success of Scream... um, Kevin Williamson came up with the idea of like obviously they wanted to bring back um, H2O because I think you said Dimension Dimension Films had the rights yes. of Halloween and Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carter wanted to work together but John Carter was intended to direct it but unfortunately due to him not having the rights anymore not getting the, lo- the royalty checks for his character um, he said I want 10 million you know for for this job and the Weinsteins just said, no, we'll get someone else. Right, that's, I've never heard that. I've never heard that. He just, now says that he basically didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it intent originally, but there's there's two different stories. There's one where one says the Weinsteins wouldn't pay his fee, and then there's another one that says um, that the, the man who had the rights of Halloween at the time, um, again, John Carter was asking, well, I want, this is my fee, you pay up or I'll do the film. And both parties just said no, right. and that's why he walked away. And they got Steve. I think it's Steve Milner. Steve Miner. Steve Miner. Who was the director of Friday the Thirteenth Parts Two and Three? Those yeah. were his first movies. But he'd also done um, a lot more mainstream kind of mid-range drama type films since yeah. then, including a movie called Forever Young with Mel Gibson as a um, like a, a U.S. Second World War soldier. Uh, oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Trapped in time, and he wakes up in the modern day and there's a romance with a modern uh, woman played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, yeah. So Lucky man. So I've got a feeling that it was probably Curtis who said, okay, Jill's not, not doing it, I recommend Steve Miner. She, 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 you know, she would have had the power to choose someone she got on with. And he has that experience in horror with Part yeah. 1, 2, Friday, yeah. Yeah, and I think he was... Um, he was again a, a little bit like Dwight H. Little on on Halloween Four. He was like, "I'm going to mainly look at Halloween One and not think about the others too much," um, and and he based his style as much as he could on what he saw from Halloween uh, One. I don't think he's quite a subtle enough director no. to really replicate the style entirely, but he does give it a good try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a well, it's a well-directed film. Yeah, I mean, it's not nobody's as good as John Carpenter doing. Halloween because he's, he's you know he is so brilliant at it and, and everybody else is sort of copying in a way and, mm. and um, but no I think he makes it yeah a I good job of it better than Friday 13th part 2 anyway it does <laughs> I, I wonder how the mechanism happened that um, Jamie Lee Curtis obviously did come up with the idea and wanted to do it mm-hmm. but also I think if she hadn't um I think Miramax would probably have wanted to do a Halloween film anyway. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to know the point at which those two ideas dovetailed. Was it just a really happy coincidence that she was... I mean, it was the 20th anniversary of Halloween as well. Mm-hmm. So so she, so she, they probably would have done a 20th anniversary film or tried to link it in. With I think it was their in, intention, but it was. I think it was that question of do we still continue with what we already have or do we do a soft reboot mm. and which was a phrase that they certainly wouldn't have used then it was a, <laughs> I know it's sort of like ret, ret, retcon retcon the work um, I suppose retcon was 
might have been around as that phrase, kind of retroactive continuity. Yeah. As, as our friend Dan, the comic man, mm-hmm. would, um, yeah. would say. But um, yeah, reboot, I think that only came in in the late noughties, probably. Yeah, it did. Um, and actually, I do remember reading a news report at the time, um, in about 97, where Kevin Williamson described that he had been engaged to write the remake of Halloween. Oh, no. So at some point, it was possibly just going to be a remake. Mm. Um, thank you. Goodness, that didn't happen <laughs> yet. Um, so, so what happened? So, therefore, we've got a kind of a, a confluence of factors which radically changed the kind of movie that these the seventh Halloween film might have been. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you say, um, uh, like you say, Luke, you know, they were thinking about what should we do? Should we continue with the story that we've got, or should we? Should we start from scratch or whatever? And I think the the return of Jamie Lee Curtis probably made that decision. Yes, easy. I think that would change it. They they just kind of obviously well look we'll just carry on from the last one she was in because it was going to be called Halloween Seven: The Revenge of Laurie Strode. That was yes. the working title. Yes, and that's the title that's on the script. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the scripts of the Halloween movies that I've been reading, by the way, are available online. There is a website which I put in the. Um, in the show details and you can download them all they're all dated um, they've all clearly been typed up into Microsoft Word and turned into PDFs so it's not like they're photocopies of the original scripts yeah. some some fans have got a hold of them and retyped them so in a way they may not be that accurate <laughs> but they are there if anybody's interested in uh, in reading them and yeah and the, I think the draft that's online is called The Revenge of Laurie Strode and it's written by Robert Zapier who is one of the credited writers, but later on in the process, Kevin Williamson and Matt Greenberg, um, who I think wrote a movie called Batteries Not Included, which I oh, yeah. might be... Mm-hmm. Jessica Tandy in there. Yeah. Um, I think they both did kind of revisions on that. Kevin Williamson didn't get credited but uh, as, as a writer, but yeah. I do think he apparently did do it at least a draft. Um, but yeah, so you've got, you've got this situation where the, the time's right, you've got a star who's interested, the budget's gone up, mm-hmm. you've kind of got a market to aim towards a, a large market, and you've got this opportunity to do a simple story, a simpler story, I think, because you because of bringing back Laurie Strode, you can cut all of these ties to the, uh, the previous sequel, mm-hmm. the previous kind of three at least, you know. Um, and therefore we start the movie in a quite striking fashion. Hello everybody, 2020 Dan here. Just wanted to interrupt this before we get into the main body of the chat about this film, because when I was listening back to it to edit it for this podcast, I realised that for reasons of time or something else, we just never mentioned one of the key aspects of the movie. It's quite ironic given that I do praise this movie for its attention to detail in a lot of areas, but one area in which its attention to detail was not necessarily so great was the area of Michael Myers's mask in this film. It's quite well known that the production started and the actor playing Michael was wearing one mask after a few um, uh, kind of producers had viewed rushes. It was decided this mask was no good. The mask was then redesigned by somebody else and then... Following further shooting, it was also decided this mask was also no good, and they eventually replaced the mask in some shots using CGI quite primitively, and uh, when you know that CGI has been used, it's quite obvious to look back at it. 
um, arguably never really fully recaptures the look of the 1978 mask and it has a unique feature um, among all the Halloween films. I think it's the only one in which you can see Michael Myers' real eyes often beneath the mask. Um, so we didn't mention this in the review but I wanted to bring it up here and I, and I did contact Luke and Howard to get their opinions about this. Luke sent me a message which says I think the mask is heavy on the features and the eyes but it helps with the horror of Michael and the eyes of a psychopath as Michael never blinks. It's better than the resurrection mask which I call the Gucci mask. Okay. Um, and Howard uh, got in touch and says Personally, I think that Michael Myers' mask in Halloween H20 is brilliant. I don't really, it is naff, obviously. I'm just trying to be controversial to get attention. Very Howard. Um, so, my position would be uh, leaning towards Luke. It's not a good mask in terms of recreating the look of the 1978 mask, but it does make um, Myers quite a threatening figure which fits in with the more kind of suspense thriller approach of this movie. Um, and I think the fact that you can see his eyes kind of darkly reflecting the light is quite effective in a number of areas. Um, I also think that when it comes to it, there's more that goes into making a good Halloween film than just getting the mask right. If there wasn't, then Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers would be the best film in the franchise, um, and it isn't. Having said all that, let's get back to the main discussion. Let's do it via listening to the trailer. And as I've been harping on about the attention to detail in the movie in general, listen to where the music in the trailer is taken from at least the first four movies in the Halloween franchise, a detail I've always liked. It's 1998 in a remote California town at a secluded private school. We could have a Halloween party, just the four of us. We could have a roaming orgy. I love the way this man thinks. No booze, no drugs, no kidding. One teacher is living in fear. I'm not who you think I am. I changed my name when I went into hiding. terrible. Take off your clothes. My brother killed my sister. <laughs> How'd he do that? With a really big kitchen knife. That's enough. I can't take it, Mom. He's dead. It's been 20 years. What's he waiting for? Don't you think he would have shown up by now? What's going on, baby? I don't know. This is a sick joke. <laughs> now. face of good and the face of evil will meet one last time. But this time, it's going to be a fight to the finish. This summer, terror won't be taking a vacation. Halloween H2O. It's Halloween. I guess everyone is entitled to one good scare. I've had my share. 
what do you like most about the very start of the movie, How what's the first thing that strikes you? Because it was a detail that I loved. Oh, um, well, it's a while since I've seen it. I mean, we're talking about Nancy Stevens now, aren't we? Well, no, well, we will that Because that's uh, her coming it, back. It is, but specifically the detail that just got me in the right frame of mind straight away was that when the Dimension Films logo comes up, you hear Mr. Sandman on oh. the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. yes, I do remember that so it just like puts us right back into Halloween 2 mode and then the first person you see is Nancy Stevens gets out a car pulls up and Nancy Stevens gets out and I think that that was just the right thing to do because you you don't have Donald Pleasance anymore but she was kind of his sidekick in yeah. Halloween 1 and 2 and it's a great way to kind of link him in and it's uh, and what they kind of seem to set up is that in the last years of Dr. Loomis's life it doesn't really specify how he died obviously again you do have a bit of a strange continuous continuity situation where he does seem to have been killed in an explosion at the end of Halloween 2 but this movie makes it look like he obviously lived longer than that well he must have done because yeah. there are photos he must, of him he must have been like probably disabled or you know he, yeah but again, like there's no when we go further in the film, you find his office and there's like notes and pictures and cuttings. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think they do describe her as his nurse. Yeah. So not not just a, the nurse who worked with him, but his nurse. So you know he must have needed care and things. But it links us directly back to that character, mm-hmm. um, and she she goes to the house and she finds that it's been broken in. Um, so she gets some friendly neighbours to, to go in with her and make sure that it's safe. And there's a lovely moment where she she her torchlight lands on a picture of Dr. Loomis, and you you get a little bit of of the Halloween score kind of coming in at that moment. Um, and the film is kind of full of little details like that, which I, I find really gratifying. And when I watched the movie a few weeks ago, as part of the triple bill with Halloween and Halloween 2 it really felt like a continuation it's a it's a bit jarring that the first two movies are in 78 and then you have a 20 year gap before the next step yeah, yeah, exactly. but, um, and you do think what has Michael Myers been doing all that time if 4, 5 and 6 didn't happen then where has Michael Myers been and what's he been doing yes and the film time? kind of vaguely points at that without explaining it at all which again is but at the same time, that's kind of in the style of the original film. It's yeah, it, does, like, it doesn't... It's, you know, it, it's along the lines of he can't drive a car, he was doing very well yeah, last night. It, it, it doesn't <laughs> matter. And matter. there's a really clever thing that um, in the opening scene, um, uh, or rather the opening sequence, which is the pre-credit sequence of the movie, essentially, um, you get a quite suspenseful little bit where she thinks that the house would be broken into, they make it safe, and then she goes back in the house, but she finds that... It, um, she's not alone in there and Michael Myers appears and there's a stalking sequence and ultimately um, uh, Marion, I think she's called, and her neighbours are all killed and Michael Myers drives away, steals the car and drives away and then it comes to the police turning up and turning it into a crime scene and there's a guy making jokes about the fact that if it says Michael Myers coming back, surely you'd be using a Zimmer frame. Like well, that. I was going to say that. They do address that point. Things are addressed that might sort of think, oh, Michael Myers is knocking on a bit now to be and they sort of do sort of well the, it's very neat because a detective um, played by Bo Billingsley oh, right. <laughs> turns around and says it, it, you know he's um, 
a, a fairly fit looking black guy in a trench coat and he basically turns around and says the guy would be younger than I am okay I was 15 when he killed his sister so you think Michael Myers could be at least as formidable as this yeah. one mm-hmm. so that that just kind of makes it easy to conceptualise um, and then you you go from that point into the title sequence and I think the first the it's it's a, a real indication I think the, the main indication at this point in the movie apart from some of the familiar actors like Joseph Gordon-Levitt who's in the opening sequence yeah, of the film gets, a, gets one in the face yes he's yes. in the face yes. uh, uh, yeah ice skate in the face that's a great death I think um, <laughs> but again there's something about the fact that you don't see the, that actually happen no. you just see the, the after the effect aftermath. of it the yeah. aftermath that's the word I was talking about um, you know, and, and then it's a shock reveal, and that's nice. Mm. I'm glad I didn't see it happen. You know, that would have been a tedious scene, probably, mm. but it's, it's great that it's a shock moment, and, and it's the thing which tells Marion that she's in real danger. There's a, a build-up of suspense there. I think in the start of the movie, though, do, do we all enjoy that as an opening? Yes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Even when I was young, it, it did get me, like... You know something's there, but you don't know when it is going to strike. Even if I didn't know who Michael Myers was, I just knew that there's a scary figure in the house. And then yeah. when you see Michael back, it's, oh God, who's this guy? Yeah, it is very well done. Mm-hmm. You kind of know what's going to happen. That they're, not, they're all doomed. But the way it's done is very good, yes. And in fact, you don't see it. And then she opens the door and he's... Yeah, I mean, um, the great thing about that opening, I think, is that like you, Luke, you could watch that movie having no knowledge of previous Halloween films and it just works. Mm-hmm. You instantly know where you are yeah. and who the characters are. And I think it's one of two elements at the start of the movie, apart from the presence of name actors that lets you know that the Halloween franchise has shifted away from where it was. Um, the first thing is that you start with this kind of opening almost, it's almost a mini movie, it's completing itself almost, and I think that's very much an attempt to replicate the start of screen, where you've got the sequence with Drew Barrymore for the first 10 minutes of the film, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of completely self-contained, I think, and it's a great suspense set piece. Um, the other thing is the music, which doesn't sound like the other Halloween films at all, even though it does reference the melodies and things. What it actually sounds like is the scores from Scream. Well, it does. Don't they actually use the same music in some of the... Yeah, the, it, the score for H2O was written by a chap called John Upman, who became a bit of a presence on the film scene in the 90s because of his collaboration with Brian Singer. He was both the music composer and the editor of The, uh, the Usual Suspects. Okay. And he fulfilled that role on... Uh, many of Singer's movies, if not all of them, up to and including the, the recent X-Men films, I think, mm. he's still doing that. He also had a brief period as a director. I think he wrote, directed, scored and edited the sequel to Urban Legends, which kind of makes <laughs> oh, it... Oh, did he? Yes, that, yeah. Bloody Mary and... Thing. Yeah. yeah. It's called Final Mary's Cut, I think. The sequel to Urban Fun, Legends. There's Final Cut and there's Bloody Mary. The oh, right. I didn't even know there's a third I think, one. Yeah, I think the third one was director video. Right, okay. But I remember it being called Bloody Mary. Actually, that does ring a bell now that you say it. Um, so, yeah, he does the score for Halloween, which is based on the John Carpenter melodies. Mm-hmm. But um, someone at Miramax decided that it was not 
um, screamy enough. So they actually got Marco Beltrami, the composer of the music from Scream, to come in and rescore the sections. But he basically used verbatim cues yeah, from Scream. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, there's, and you can tell us the whole bit where Joseph Gordon Levitt goes in the house with his hockey stick and like tries to scare out the intruder is entirely backed by Marco Beltrami's cues that are very familiar from Scream 2 and, and things like that. Um, and, but, and then from that you go into the title sequence which is it has the Halloween theme and what I particularly like is that the credits are in the Halloween font mm-hmm. but the music is thoroughly orchestrated and made all kind of grand and things. Mm-hmm. And I like it but also I think it doesn't work. <laughs> It's like it's not scary. Well, no, it's not scary. But I think they are trying to do something different. Yeah. I think by this stage, oh, do we have to do a sequence with a pumpkin and the music? Yeah. Let's try yeah. something different. No, and I like the title sequence itself. The visuals are the cameras prowling around Loomis's office, and you see all of his news clippings, and it kind of fills you in on the backstory a lot. And I think um, some people say that there are. Um, you can see details of all, all of Michael's murders on there, including the ones from Halloween 4, 5 and 6. But it does make me think, if 4, 5 and 6 actually happened, why does um, Laurie Strode not know she had a daughter? Well, in the, fourth, um, in the film, uh, they do hint about her faking her death. Which is a yes, sm- oh, which they, is a- they acknowledge that, definitely. They, yeah, they do acknowledge. So it is a small nudge and wink that... We, even though we're not following the count of four to six, we are going with the fact that Lois Strode has faked her death, yeah. going by the name of Tate, and you know she, she's still alive in this version. Yeah, it's kind of a big enough lurch that they have to acknowledge that. But also, I think, but it still does mean that the other films <laughs> happened because she she didn't just forget she had a daughter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, but. Nevertheless, I think it's a nice title sequence. You get you get the correct credits. I say correct. I can, they're, they're in the right font for me. I'm a font Nazi. Um, uh, the music's very nice, if not frightening, but it is invigorating. And you get um, some voice clips of an actor purporting to be Donald Pleasant. It's not. It sounds like Tom Courtney. It's um, Bob Kane. Tom Kane. Tom Kane. Sorry, yeah. yeah. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding, even the most rudimentary sense of life and death, good or evil, right or wrong. He is a guy who does a lot of animation voice yeah. doesn't he? he? He's like one of the voices on the Star Wars cartoons. Yeah, he's the voice. Yeah. And I think he is English, isn't he? I'm not entirely sure. I'm not familiar with his work, but he, he does have a distinct accent. Right. I mean, I mean, I think the uh, the voice on the credits, presumably it's there because they couldn't separate Donald Pleasance's voice no, you need some from kind the original of... recording mm-hmm. because of the music on that I think I have a tribute to Donald Pleasance as well. We want Donald we love Donald Pleasance yeah. and we want him to be in this film oh, in yeah. some way. Oh, no, no, so. I, know, I know why it's that. What I mean is... I know that they would have used the original Donald Blaze recording if they could. Mm. Ironically, I, I think um, digital um, technology has probably got to the point now where you could easily just pull his voice from that scene and remove the music mm-hmm. and use that. But they probably couldn't do that then, so it was easy to just get an actor. A friend of mine, um, my friend Chopper, who I think you oh, know, yes, I know Chopper. Um, we saw it together at the, start of the time, and he said, it sounds like, Do- um, it sounds like Dr. Loomis 
has been making additional money doing a gay chat line. <laughs> um, there is something a bit fair about it. It is a bit something. Um, and also, it's uh, he is trying to do Donald Pleasance's kind of um, voice or, or intonation at points, but I don't think he's really aware that Pleasance was sort of doing an American accent. Mm. Mm. So it sounds English. Sounds more English than certainly Donald Pleasance did in the early films in in the series. But it's still, it's a it's a really nice touch to to have it there. And I remember when I I, I showed this film to my mum at the time when it came out on video. And um, the voice started, and um, my mum went, "Is that supposed to be Donald Pleasance?" <laughs> That's not Donald Pleasance. <laughs> I was like, "It is. It is a clip from the original film." I just and I knew it was. I was just lying to because I wanted to believe he was somehow in this movie. And uh, but so basically, you get um, an opening sequence which I think sets up the the attitude of this new movie as being a, mo- a movie which is a a suspense thriller take on the Halloween original. It's very faithful to the details of the Halloween original, but it's not that movie. It's kind of it's it wants to be scraped, mm-hmm. and um, and I think I think that's fine. I think it's very yeah, enjoyable no, on fine. that on that level. I think it just it takes working formulas of Scream, and from what even though Scream uses Halloween as the example of. How to survive a slasher film. It seems like a cheeky, okay, you can use this kind of thing, kind of like we can use, you can use like the direction and the scope mm-hmm. and the nudge, nudge, wink, wink, wink off screen. Because it's the same company, isn't it, with Dimension Films? Yes, it is, yeah. And, um, so yeah. again, the Weinsteins have input into all these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's got. It's got same kind of sensibility as Scream. It's got, it's got all the... Think about it, it gets the balance right, I think, this film. It does have all the references to the old films and things and things, but it, it does tell its own story. Yeah. You know, they don't go too far with the, with the mythology of it or the continuity of it. it. It tells its own story, but those references are there just, for, just to give it a bit of extra kind of... just to reinforce what it is. Mm. I think it's... Really, more detail. It's really satisfying to, as a trilogy, I think. Those three movies, they feel like they're all connected kind of intimately, and the end of H2O is satisfying as an end to that story. Yes, yes. and it is. And then they see what I find um, one of the things that's most interesting about this film is the presence of Jamie Lee Curtis coming back, playing the last girl, the final girl, like 20 years on. Mm-hmm. And how, how has she coped with How has she dealt with being attacked by a serial killer and all her friends being killed uh, and all the stuff happening in the hospital? You know, how has that affected her? Uh, but also, Jamie Lee Curtis has, at that time, her own image, her own screen image that she, you know, um, in Halloween she is the nice one, the quiet one, the virginal one, whatever. But Jamie Lee Curtis's film image from things like Fish Called Wanda, she's very sassy, she's very sort of smart. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of, you know, I sort of like, um, at one point she says to Josh Hartman, I think it is, I know you inherited my smart mouth, John. <laughs> and, well, she didn't really have a smart mouth in the first film, but she's changed over that time. You know, she's she's. Yeah. You kind of think she's she's very believable. Yeah. You know, I think that's how she would. They, they haven't just made her the same as she was in that film. They that character's developed, and that character is sort of. Because that's where she would be when. Because it's not afraid to show the flaws of the character as well. That like the character is an alcoholic and. Still, yeah, yeah. It's still that's how it's affected her. It's still affected the idea. You know, your your brother was Michael Myers, a killing psychopath. But she's got a family and everything, and, and, and mm-hmm. it's just great to see her. She's such a great actress. Yeah, I, I love her haircut. 
It's fantastic to have her back, and um, I do also love her haircut, but I, I, I miss the lorry long hair, yeah. <laughs> um, which they brought back in the new movie. And I think it's interesting to um, there's a there's a quote because obviously in a way in a strange way the new Halloween film will be kind of a remake of Halloween H2O. It's again it's Jamie Lee Curtis coming back decades later, and it's a sequel that ignores the in, in between sequels. Um, and in one interview, she was very clear about the fact that she wanted when she walks on screen, she wants the audience to think, oh that's Laurie again. That's not Jamie Lee Curtis. And that's why in the new film she has the long hair again. They're using different methods to illustrate how time has changed her. And I think, mm. and it's quite fun. I think for me to think that you, you'll have two parallel universe mm. versions of this character, <laughs> both played by the same actor but have gone in different directions. So it gets confusing. You know, it's kind of like um, the Gwyneth Paltrow movie Sliding Doors, but split into two films. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so. That's the setup, and we know from that opening sequence that Michael Myers is back. We don't know where he's been for 20 years, really, mm-hmm. but we know that he's back and that he's a threat. And then we are introduced after the opening credits to um, Jamie Lee Curtis as a character called Kerry Tate, but she's having nightmares about being stopped by Michael Myers. She wakes up in a slightly comical screaming fit, the way it's filmed, um, and it's pretty clear to certainly anyone who's familiar with the previous movies that this is Laurie under a new name. In fact, I think in the, the, the opening of the movie after the credits is a dream sequence where she finds on her writing desk a piece of paper with the name Laurie Strode on it and it's got a knife stabbing into it. So she's spent all this time um, dreaming and fearing that Michael will eventually find her. Um, and the kind of premise of the movie is that she has, has kind of been moved by like witness protection, she faked her death, she's under a different name, she's now the head teacher of a private school somewhere in California. Yes, yeah, California they moved it to. Um, and therefore we've got this the first movie in the series since three, not set in Haddonfield, I think. Mm. Um, and I think that's... Again, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I It's, it's a kind of change that's needed, that we've done the Haddonfield thing now. Yeah, and I think you're right. They put it somewhere else, just gives it a bit of freshness. But I, I, I think that does make it a bit. The sort of setting of it feels a bit more like a generic slasher mm. film. Yeah. But as you were saying, Haddonfield was kind of going that way in the later sequels anyway. You know, it was moving away from that suburban thing, which was yes. the point in the first couple of movies, and it was becoming kids getting killed in various locations. Mm. So why not be in a posh private school somewhere? And you have this kind of plot which is a little bit um, kind of mechanically established. That all the kids in the school are going on holiday for Halloween. So the school will be empty. Um, but um, Jamie Lee Curtis's children, uh, sons, son, yeah. her son and his friends um, are all pupils at that school. And they contrive to like miss the bus. And they're going to spend... The Halloween together without the the adults knowing kind of thing, I, and it's all a bit kind of slightly half-hearted mm. um, and perfunctory. But at the same time, I do like the actors playing all the characters, apart from maybe Josh Hartnett, who I always found a bit annoying, and he was the one who went on to become Stark for a bit. Although, what's happened to him now? Well, well he's, he's Stark for a bit. Michelle Williams is the one who's 
Yeah, that's she's true. Going very well, yeah. That's true. Yeah, but but weirdly, she kind of she's a big star in movies now. But after this film, she went back to TV and just mm-hmm. carried on being Dawson's Creek for several years. I think it's taken a while. I think the thing which really broke her through was when she played Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a film that she I think she did before the Marilyn Monroe film um, called I think it's called Incredible Incredibility, and she plays a grieving mother whose family died in a terrorist attack. Oh. While she was having an affair with Hugh McGregor, so it's about a mother's a mother's guilt, but also she's finding the comfort of grief, and it's a really good film. Right, okay. Um, she's a great actress. She's no doubt. She's about. amazing. Um, even in like Manchester by the Sea, she's brilliant. Um, I've seen enough of. Her. <laughs> yeah, I've seen him as Man of the Rail, which is really good in that. But going back to Josh Hart, I think you know he's obviously he's a kid at that time, and it was his first. Like his first film, just like Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes, he gets the introducing credits in mm-hmm. the opening credits, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he he does well in like filling the gap. I mean, obviously, it'll, it'll appeal to the young, to the youth that went to go see that film at the time because he was he was the upcoming star. It's his first film, and then he did quite a, quite a few comedies, and then he did last film I remember him being good in was um, Sin City. Um, oh yeah, yeah, and then he had a small role in that, and then he did the Penny Dreadful series. Oh, that's right. Well, isn't he in that film set in Alaska or something, where the vampires all turn Yes, up, that, Thirty yeah. Days of Night. Yeah. That, yeah, that was eleven years ago. Oh, good God, was it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I saw that and enjoyed it at the time. Yeah, I enjoyed it at the time. Yeah, it's weird. He went. It was like. He'd been around in movies nearly a decade then, but he he still wasn't quite old enough or grizzled enough to play the kind of character they wanted him to do in that film. He had to have a, a beard on to kind of give him <laughs> the dramatic weight, um, and I'm not sure it entirely succeeded. Um, so that so then we've we've got the setting, mm-hmm. and we have we've set up a little bit like when we were talking about in Halloween Four. There's um, uh, an imitation of the structure of the original Halloween. You've got your kind of main setting of the film with a bunch of characters who are not aware of the danger that's approaching. And then you've got the parallel plot of coming towards Haddonfield and, um, sorry, the parallel plot of the danger approaching the, mm-hmm. I was going to say Haddonfield, but in this film it's not Haddonfield. Um, I think in the in an earlier version of the script, they had a detective from Haddonfield or wherever um, Marion lived where she was killed Landon I think he's called yeah. in, the, in the opening title um, he kind of follows the clues and he follows Michael to the school so you've got that you've kind of got an imitation of the plot of the of the strand of the original where Loomis is is closing in on Haddonfield and trying to raise the alarm at some point in the production of this movie they decided to lose the detective character Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's probably the guy played by Bo Billingsley, who yeah. seems like he's going to be a major character in the movie, but then doesn't appear again after the opening scene. And they even went just so far as to cast him. He's going to be played by, I think, either Robert Forster or Charles S. Dunn. Oh, well, yeah, they're both um, big names. But uh, the rewrite that dropped that character is quite late in the day, so they, they just got rid of him. But you do still have this kind of parallel, and I think quite suspenseful thing, that you've got everything nice and happy in the school and character building stuff and then cut to Michael Myers' car driving along the road mm. the kind of little suspense bit where he, he steals a, another car because he runs out of gas and things like that um, so and you've got those two things running in parallel for quite a long time like maybe an hour 
yeah. before Michael Myers actually gets to the school and you start to have kind of slash stuff. Well, this is the thing, again, what I like about this film is it's not about the killing. Mm-hmm. In the same way that Halloween is not about the killing, this isn't about the killing. This is about the suspense. This is about the build-up to the killing or between. Uh, like you say, you don't see the guy getting stabbed in the ice skate in the face. Yeah. You just see the aftermath. So it's a film that's not about let's how many people, how many gruesome murders we can have. Because, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a scene, isn't there, in the, the little girl in the toilet or something, and she's out screaming, and spiders and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, so, and they're all right. They, nothing happens to that mother and daughter, and he just drives off. So, so this isn't about how many people we can kill and how many gruesome ways they can be killed in. This is about, um, you have three killings at the beginning and then there's a long time before and again, anything else happens. And again, they kind of put a little bit of suspense into Michael Myers' actions. You don't know what he's going to do. They take away that thing that you know that he's just going to kill whoever he encounters. He just walks into room and just stabs everybody. But Yeah, but in, th- in this film... You think that's what's going to happen, but actually, if he doesn't need to kill them to get what his objective, mm. he won't. So he just steals the woman's hand back with her car keys in it, so that he can take her car. Mm. And there's a bit where, um, when he is his car eventually appears at the gates of the school, and the security guard played by LL Georgia <laughs> comes out to check the car, you see Michael slipping past him, but he doesn't kill him. Yeah. You know, and, and every glimpse you get of him whether it's through a dirty window of a car um, or just kind of a, a shadow moving in the background or a face through a crack uh, or a keyhole it's generally quite well done yeah. you know um, it's it's done with quite a lot of focus and um, I think it works quite well um, but it kind of slasher movie fans at the time did criticise it a lot because people didn't really get, they thought it was boring because they weren't killing everything. Well, people. that's mm. and and, uh, and I remember kind of Halloween fans writing angry posts on the internet saying, "You don't get it. You haven't seen the original film. This is what it's meant to be like." Um, yeah, so that just kind of illustrates how expectations have been changed, really. But yeah. if not, from what there are not that many murders in Scream, though. No. It's only a They are kind of spread out through the film. Yeah. You know, um, whereas Halloween H2O deliberately imitating the first one has kind of like an hour long section at the beginning where there's no murders. No, and that's good. That, that's, I think it's, that's good. good. I think it's good. I, I think yeah. it was because obviously when the horror genre was coming back into fruition, um, it was expected like there has to be. A murder every like 15 10 minutes or someone has to die where Halloween it said we've taken the scream elements but we're gonna do it our way like we did last time and uh, the director just catches he does capture Carpenter's direction like this is a killer like something we it's that thing something wicked this way comes and you know Laurie again she's a flawed character she she know she's made a new life but she still carries the scars and you have Michael who's making his way back from the home of the original to this new area. And I think that could be looked at a transition from taking something old and then transitioning to something new because now Michael is going into the new world of horror. He's going to California where most yeah, of the films yeah, were shot. Yeah, yeah. i tell you what, that, um, that's just made me think of something. Recently, um, Mark Kermode and Kim Newman did a, a series on BBC4 about film genres. It was mm. called Mark Kermode's Secrets of Cinema. Oh, yeah. And in the one about horror, 
they made an observation which I'd never really thought before, which was that horror stories tend to start with a journey. It kind of represents a character almost passing from the real world into like the nightmare world. And you think, yeah, The Shining starts with a journey. Yeah, Psycho starts with a journey. Um, and, I, and I kind of thought a lot and could almost not think of any which didn't. But now I realise this movie doesn't... Well, it does, but it's the killer who's on the journey <laughs> looking for the, the heroine. And that, but that's the same as Halloween did. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's again, it's that danger drawing near. The fact that it's coming to you rather than you... Because I, I think Carpenter might have talked about that in the sense that people expected horror movies to be about characters going somewhere they shouldn't go and something happens to them. They didn't expect horror to come to them on their doorsteps. And that's part of the impact that Halloween had was it's in your streets, in your house, your next door neighbour won't help mm. kind of thing. Um, so again, I've never thought of that before, but that's another way that um, this movie is faithful to, to what Halloween, the original film, kind of set up. So. Because of that structure, we get a lot of time in the school and we get to know uh, Laurie, or Kerry, as she's referred to for most of the movie. Um, her boyfriend, Will, played by Adam Arkin, son of the great Alan Arkin. Mm-hmm. Um, we get to know um, John, her son, and Molly, his girlfriend, and their two friends, whose name I think might be Miles and Sarah. I'm not too clear. Um, but played by Geraldine O'Keefe and Adam Hanbird, who are, I think all of them are quite fun presences, and it's good to kind of hang around with them. And basically, oh, and also LL Cool J playing the security guard. That becomes a comic relief, yeah. Yeah, and 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 I do think he's actually quite funny. In in a series where we've had to deal with things like the cops in Halloween Park, <laughs> yeah. he comes to me as a breath of fresh air. And his first scene where he's like reading some erotic novel that he's written to his wife. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's something like your breasts are like melons <laughs> and he's like, When are my breasts are like melons? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think it's great that basically so what's that? Six seven characters, that's your entire cast. Because um Something I said on the Halloween 2 podcast the other week was that I kind of had a sinking feeling as soon as I saw the opening credits to Halloween 2 because there's so many names in it. In Halloween 1, there's about five. And I just knew that it was going to be death scenes, loads of death scenes, because that's what all these actors are there for. Mm. In Halloween H2O, there aren't that many main characters. That's one of the problems with slasher movies generally, is that characters are just fodder. You know, you have to have people to be killed, and so the heroine has to have a boyfriend, and she also has to have a best friend, and the best friend's got to have a boyfriend, it's got to be somebody else. And you know, all these characters, they're not really very well delineated characters because they're just there to be killed. Well, you, like, just, you just need people to be killed. You've got the jock, you've got the, the, the whore, you've got the. Yeah, you know, you've got you've the, got the stereotype. Talk, and they're stereotype. Guy, the writers stereotype, yeah. can't really be bothered in most films to make them believable characters because there's no point because they're just going to be killed in, in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this film, there is. Again, connected to Scream, an attempt to make those characters a bit richer and a bit more believable and a bit funnier and yeah. a bit smarter. There's like basically your teenagers fall into two couples. There's um, Josh Hartnett and Michelle Williams, who are kind of your conventional um, kind of American movie protagonist, very pretty blonde type mm. um, pair. Hitchcock's blonde. That's mainly what I remember, but you know, but they do. They're both sufficiently good actors that you kind of care about them. Mm-hmm. And then they're two friends who are like, um, 
what well, the sort of nerdy pair, although the, the female half of that couple is um, strikingly attractive <laughs> for, for a nerd, but they're, they're talking about um, Roman orgies and culinary things and poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they seem like quite eclectic characters. And they're also this, this good device that they've um, all decided to um, stow away or smuggle themselves off the bus so that they're on their own in the school but they're going to have a secret Halloween party and they put kind of creativity into making this Halloween den mm-hmm. which it kind of is a visual way of showing character which is, is all nice I think that all, all and the dialogue well. was written by um, all the teenage dialogue was actually rewritten by Kevin Williamson oh is that right? yeah because um, I don't know what the original script might have looked like I heard they just said again go with the tropes Right. That's been put there, but I think um, Kevin Wilson made it more modern because obviously he wrote Scream, mm. and you know he brought more of that into into the characters. I think that's why, because again, it's not just performance, but it's the back and forth between characters. You know, some jokey and serious, and you know they're act- they they actually talk and act like teenagers. They're not the basic. Hey guys, there's a party yeah. going down there. Let's boogie. Yeah, yeah. That's so, the, the characters in both slash films are so generic and so stereotyped and so. And so, but they don't have characters. They just they don't talk about anything except sex and drugs, yeah. and there's nothing else. And I don't know, maybe some teenagers don't talk about anything. <laughs> but they they have no characters because they don't need to have a character, so nobody gives them one. Whereas in this film, they do have characters, and they are kind of just more a bit more authentic, and they just seem a bit more sympathetic. You know that there's more to them. Mm. Just better written than yes. a lot of slasher films are. And, and, um, I think this is maybe the point to mention. I think this film gets a lot of criticism now for certainly when you compare it to the original movie and the kind of thing that mm. um, Carpenter was doing, and even the Rob Zombie movies, which have their own kind of grungy, kind of chic. They, they at least have their own sensibility. This movie looks kind of visually and, and in terms of design and costume and things like that, and music. This movie looks kind of a bit bland. And sounds a bit bland. It's got the kind of traditional score of the time. It's got the kind of TV actors of the time, mm-hmm. and it maybe doesn't stand up too well on, the, on that level if you look at it just for that. But I think because everything underpinning that, I, I reckon, is right as in terms of how they've set up the story and the characters. I don't really mind what it looks like. No. I mean, I think the new movie looks a lot more like they've deliberately successfully tried to recreate the visual style of the original Halloween mm-hmm. um, and it'd be great if they had successfully done that on this one I don't think it, it's there but again it's set in a different place it's mm-hmm. it's showing the characters changed by two decades of time It's it's got plenty of dramatic licenses to be different but it's the same in the really key ways that, that count I think like bringing the nurse back like using some of the music, like the the way the story is structured for suspense. Um, so you know, I, uh, I I think all the major decisions that they were making are, are really great. I think they're on point, as as the modern kids say. Yeah, I think with the with H Shaw as well. Um, going back to his mayor culture as well, um, coming from screen. I think the best moment for me is when. It's Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee together, and they're back and forth. And obviously, there's the psycho hint, but it's just how it's that idea of like two screen queens, like the one who was in yeah. the first official slasher film, Psycho, mm. 
and her daughter, who was in the second wave of the re- the, reinv- the reinvented slasher film, just hand this back and forth because that was last. I think that was the last, last film Janet Lee was in before she died, wasn't mm. it? Might well have been. Might I think, well I think been. it was the last theatrical film. Yeah. yeah. So but she plays a character called Norma. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was just a beautiful moment to have you know two screen queens of two different decades in this mill in this film at this particular time. Yeah. And just saying, like, uh, you know, take care, don't get stabbed, look after yourself, and then I'll drive off in the murder car. The one essential difference between this film and the first film, and this applies to all the sequels, all the sequels that have been made and all the sequels that will be made and remakes, whatever, is that in the first film, you don't know what Michael Myers is about, you don't know what he's going to do. In all the sequels, you do know what he's going to do and what he's about. And that is something that all films have to deal with. Yeah. Michael Myers is a known quantity by now. We know what he's going to do, and he was going to kill people. And so, you've got a slightly harder job to make it suspenseful and make it tense because. Well, you, I think you can make it tense, and I think the film is tense. I think it is. But no, I mean they do. That's what I'm saying. They do. But it's, it's, they do. it's a more mechanical, linear kind of tension because you know what's going to happen. Really, you just don't know when. Yeah. Um, whereas, in Halloween, you don't really know, and. That should actually make the, more, the suspense more diffuse. That the rules of suspense are that you give the audience all the information, but you withhold something key, like the time when the bomb under the table is going to go off. Is Hitchcock's example. But in Halloween, loads of the information is not there. But it's really suspenseful, I think. Um, and I still sometimes find myself wondering how they did that. Um, <laughs> I think this works very well with the limitations. All sequels have limitations. All sequels have limitations. Because they have to find that balance between what people want from the first film and doing something new with it. And you've got to satisfy both kind of thing, both aspects of that. They are the old and the new. What people want from the first film and but doing it in a different way. And I think this film is as, is as good as any at finding that balance of, of retaining the elements of the first film, what people want, but doing it in a new, slick, yeah. smart kind of way. And I think that... Um I think it's called direct suspense, the kind of suspense I've just been talking about where you know everything, but you just don't know when. And I think this movie maybe maximises that, because you know that when Michael Myers gets to that school, he's basically going to kill everyone who's there, he's going to chase Laurie. But they kind of prolong that point for so long. And, And they play some fun games with... He's kind of there in the area, but has he got through the gates yet? Is he inside the grounds? There's a bit where you see the, the gates closing, but you, the camera cuts before they're fully closed. So you're thinking, did he just slip through at the last minute? <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, and I think... And there's like a moment where Laurie thinks she sees Michael walking towards her. And she keeps shutting her eyes, hoping thinking it's just in her mind. And she opens her eyes and he's there. Yeah. Yeah. But then when he finally gets right up to her, it turns out it's actually her boyfriend. Um, <laughs> Adam Arkin and some people think that's kind of like a fake out and of course it is but it works I think because they've, they've done quite clever um, they've, they've left little gaps where you don't quite know is he in there or not yet things like that um, and then obviously once it does become clear that he is in there it's a total suspense film and a chase film and I think all the sequences where he stalks the different teenagers um, and uh, and tries to trap them and things, and they find each other's dead bodies and that. They're all really well done, I think. Um, I see where she's Jamie is crying on the floor, and he's 
walking on the tables. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's that's kind of after that's in in the final phase because then you've got two sequences. Really, you've got the first bit where the we discover that Michael Myers is in there. He starts to stalk and kill the kids, and they start to become aware that he's there. Mm. Then. Um, Jeremy Lee gets him out of the building. Gets, sorry, gets all the kids out of the building, sends them away so they're safe, and then takes the fight to Michael Myers, and he kills her boyfriend. Um, and there's a bit with in the same way as too. So uh, we have talked for an hour and ten minutes about Halloween Edge to O, and I think we've said lots of good things about why it's uh, why we like it. Mm-hmm. What we've not really discussed is. Is all the, the the great excitement towards the end, which I think there is. Mm. Um, I think maybe we shouldn't go to, in, into that into too much detail because people who've not seen this movie should check it out. I think even if you haven't seen Halloween, I think this is worth. A yeah, I think this is. Although I like Halloween too. Yeah. And I think it's my favourite sequel in that it's a direct sequel to the first one, and it's very much in the style of the first one and the continuation of that. And Pleasant, Jamie Lee, are both in it. Uh, I think this is the best sequel. This is the best made sequel. It's the one that stands up on its own mm-hmm. the best, I think. But also, if you do like Halloween 1 and 2 and, and you want to follow up to those, it also fulfills that role. It works. It's, as Kim Newman said, it's maybe not a great sequel to Halloween, but it's a great sequel to Halloween 2. Yeah, it follows exactly, yeah. on perfectly from that. It's a very entertaining film in its own right. It works in its own. That's what sequels have to do, they work within. By themselves, you know, they have to work within themselves, if you see what I mean, mm-hmm. as well. You can't just say, well, it's good because the first one was good. They have to have their own kind of story to tell that it's good, and this one does, which is some of the other ones, early ones don't. Mm-hmm. How about yourself, Luke? Have you got anything else you'd like to say? Um, well, apart from the ending, which I think is a, a suitable ending for that particular trailer, especially, I agree with both what you said. Um, to me, again, Halloween H.O. has a personal connection to me because it was the first film that I saw of the Halloween series. But I think in itself, it, it's, a per- it's a fitting end to the trilogy. And even though it got mixed reviews uh, from critics, it still got a positive response by the fans because it was the film that I think most of us wanted. Even if you're a fan of 4 and 6, you can agree that even if you consider it a basic slasher film, it is a film that stands it on right. It acknowledges the old, but respects the new. And to me, Halloween Hero is is a perfect ending to the to that Halloween story. Until Halloween Resurrection decide to ruin everything. Well, we'll, we'll come to that. Um, though that didn't happen, as far as I'm concerned. I'll take the ending <laughs> as it stands. And I love the fact that it's again attention to detail. Um, at the end of the movie, um, finally, spoilers, Laurie is able to defeat Michael. She does it by chopping his head off, so you, you're pretty sure he's never going to get up again. And the Halloween theme kicks in, and it's not the John Hotman reorchestrated version, it's the original John Carpenter one. And just like at the end of Halloween 1, you hear that theme playing, and you hear sinister, sinister breaths. But the first film, it's Michael Myers breathing through his mask because he's still on the prowl. In H2O, it's Laurie breathing because from the, from the exertion, she's just conquered the So presumably that ending was, that was going to be the end. There wasn't going to be any more. Michael Myers was dead. Well, as you say... I know nobody's ever dead in a horror film. I know, but as you say in Hollywood, uh, money talks. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Um, well, actually, they did know at the time that there was a, a loophole 
but I think that's maybe better explored when yeah. we talk about Halloween Resurrection because because well you know <laughs> if we're not going to say that about Halloween Resurrection what else are we going to say about the movie I'm sorry I watched this film last night and yeah, it's not very good and, and I'm already oh. a little bit down on it but um, but not not to make spoilers for our next podcast we'll come to that one thank you very much Luke for being our special no, guest it's a pleasure You've made me want to go back and watch this film again. It's been really nice exploring how clever it is. Thank you very much, Howard, for your presence, as always. And we will be back to talk about Halloween Resurrection. And God bless you all. (laughs) Bye. Bye. And we're back. It's 2020 again. Hello, Kirsty. Hello. (laughs) Hello, Stella. Hello. And we're here to do some recommendations. Who wants to go first? I'll go first, and I actually know that this one's good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Splendid. (laughs) I've got confidence. (sighs) Right. So I want to recommend, and because I watched it yesterday in preparation for the Ghost Watch thing last night, I want to recommend the 2019 Halloween special of Inside Number 9. It's only half an hour of your time, and it's just delicious <laughs> it's so yes. so good it's on the iPlayer it's called what's it called the the deadline or something the dead end I think um season it's not, five I think I don't think it's the deadline I think that's something else oh. no so that's oh well. terrible isn't it anyway but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that episode. but no it's it's the, tw- it's the 2018 Halloween special we'll put a link in the show notes I've Next seen down. it too it, it is terrific <laughs> It's so good. I watched it yesterday in preparation. I'd not seen it before. And I watched it um, about four o'clock in the afternoon with the curtains closed in this little room. And it was really, really good. Really enjoyed it. So watch that. Half an hour. You can watch it on your lunch break tomorrow. Yeah, it's it's really great. Um, <laughs> and it was talked about, obviously, on the panel yesterday, but also in the comments. And I noticed Stephen Volk, who wrote Ghost Watch, left a comment saying yeah. that he got a text or a call from Reese Shearsmith after that episode came out saying that they deliberately designed that episode to be a love letter to Ghost Watch. Um, oh, so yeah, <laughs> it definitely is. It's lovely. Yeah, he was very flattered and it's, it's terrific stuff. Kirsty, what's your recommendation? Okay, I've got a couple, if that's okay. So off different media sure. types, though. So um, uh, so I um, got around to watching uh, the other day uh, for my, uh, as part of a kind of afternoon movie uh thing with my husband while well, the kids were at holiday club because that's what we do um oh, we watched uh, on sky cinema ready or not oh wonderful um, yeah so it's a you know yeah kind of comedy horror thing um with some some people you might vaguely recommend recognize some other things including including uh adam brody seth from the oc um and mark o'brien who was who was in hannibal so there's my reference for this week. Hey, there uh, we go. Okay. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So uh, yeah. So the kind of the, the conceit of it is, it's a you know kind of a fun film. Uh, a, a kind of a woman marries into a very wealthy um, family who have uh, got their money from um, uh, you know, making, manufacturing, selling board games. Um, and you know, as part of the kind of family tradition, that when one of, one of them gets married, the new member of the family has to pick a game to play um, and that's how they get accepted into the, the family but obviously all are not as it, it always not as it seems and um, 
you know, kind of end, we end up in a sort of, you know, kind of bloodbath scenario in a big old house um, with people, you know. It's all, it's all a lot of fun. It reminded me a little bit of, of um, Clue, you know, in terms of... Yes. Yeah, kind of, it was sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek. Um, didn't take itself too seriously. It was a uh, cracking sort of 80 minutes, um, you know. The, and, there's no yeah. let-up in it, is that I, I have seen no. that one. Um, yeah. And it's... I, I, I loved it. And, and it's by the guys who are doing the new Scream film. Okay. Uh, which I think is a, a great uh, fit. Um, yeah. But also, um, if I'll just interrupt your recommendations uh, slightly, Kirsty, um, my recommendations on Shudder, and while looking through it, I noticed that I think another film on there at the moment is VHS, mm. which Rob Savage mentioned when we were yeah. talking to him. And the bit in that film that he um, cited as an influence on host and recommended is also by the Ready or Not guys. Okay. That was, yeah. That's where they came from. I can't remember what the, the, the segment's titled, but just watch the whole yeah. film. Yeah. You'll, uh, and whichever is the good bit is probably <laughs> that one. So, um, But no, yeah, Ready or Not's great, yeah. and it's got um, one of my favourite actors who I thought had disappeared in it, a guy called Henry Sojourney, who, whose surname I'm not quite sure how to pronounce. He plays like the head of the family. Oh, right. And he is... He was the... Um, the kind of boss in the first Tom Cruise Mission Impossible film 20 odd years ago and but then didn't appear in any of the sequels but he's now coming back in the new one I don't know what he's been doing for 20 it's years been, but like, you know kind of had a really long sabbatical clearly <laughs> <laughs> well yeah um he's very very good um and and the lead actress in Ready yeah. or Not is just terrific, yes. Samara Weaving, yeah. who's just... Not Margot Robbie, be- even though they are startlingly similarly looking. <laughs> they are, yes, yeah. Um, but uh, and, and Samara Weaving has just been in the new Bill and Ted film. Oh, okay. Which is, is a non-horror film I can thoroughly recommend. She plays the daughter of... Oh, I forget which one's Bill and which one's Ted, but the daughter of the one who is played by Alex Winter. Bill? Um, it's one of them. Uh, 50 50 uh, chance of being right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might be right. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, and like, what makes it more confusing in that film is that the, each of their daughters is named after the other one. So Bill's daughter is called Thea after Ted, and Ted's daughter is called Billy after Bill. So it just like took me ages to I love, just work I love out. How the, how the wives have had any say in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, yeah, I mean that will come clear when you see the movie. Sadly, um, yeah, that that that's the wives are uh, and the treatment of the wives is a definite weakness. Anyway, so anyway. Um, sorry, I, I yes. interrupted your recommendations. So my second recommendation actually only came across this morning when I was uh, marching around local National Trust property um, and had All just right. finished the most recent episode of Tannis. So um, I went on to uh, BBC Sounds and found. The Sink, a sleep aid, uh, which was only released yesterday. It's a, I think they're releasing episodes weekly. It's a comedy horror um, from Natasha Hodgson, um, and it's. Uh, I mean, Dan, you would love it. I, I will. Okay. I'm quite confident in telling you that you. Will, I think you will appreciate right. it. It's a kind of surreal, dark kind of dreams kind of merged together into you know kind of surreal little kind of sketches comedy sketches 
um, okay. but framed by this what appears to be a kind of um, sort of app thing, which you know, or some sort of technology which is meant to sort of take your dreams out of your head and clean your brain for you. Um, and the technology right. is narrated by Stella Alice Lowe. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so uh, yes, that's quite lovely. Um, so it's only about uh, kind of 25 minutes, only one episode so far, but very, very mm. enjoyable kind of, you know, you know, lovely in the way that, you know, us horror people use that word lovely to refer to things. Right. Like <laughs> yeah. Slightly disturbing and comfortable. Yes. But well made. So, yeah, that was my, that's my second recommendation. Awesome. That sounds great. Did you say that was a BBC Thing. Yes, BBC. Oh, oh. Yeah, it's on so the sounds. On app. BBC sounds, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, fantastic! I shall seek that out. Nice one. I I like the cutting edgeness of. There's only one episode. Yes. That's, yeah. that's what. what? Usually, usually when I discover a new podcast, it's been going for twelve years. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, uh-huh. that's grand. Okay. Um. So my recommendation. I mentioned at the start that I've been doing my Halloween week. Um, of of just horror stuff every night and um, I I would hope that something recommendable would come out of doing that and it did Um, so On Shudder uh, is a Korean zombie uh, movie called One Cut of the Dead Mm. have you guys heard of that? I've heard of it, I've not seen it though but I I think every every time I've come across it it's always come with a lot of you know kind of praise and recommendations it's fantastic, and it's it's one of those films that I can't say much more than it's fantastic because I, I really wouldn't want to spoil any aspects of it for anyone. I just strongly say watch it, and um, no matter what you think of it at the start, stick with it for at least 45 minutes um, because, <laughs> because things are revealed. Okay. It's it's just great. It's it, it, it really good. So, awesome. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's my big recommendation, is One Cut of the Dead. I don't know how long it'll be on Shudder, um, but I would genuinely say, it's if, you, if you're one of the listeners who didn't get a free trial to watch Host, then this also <laughs> justifies the free trial. Um, definitely. Well, I'll watch that for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Well, thank you so much, Stella. Thank you so much, Kirsty. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Dad. Um, once again, thank as it you. always is. Um, listeners, next week... I genuinely don't know what the podcast is going to be about. I just know that it's going to be about something. We'll, something. we'll, we'll, we'll keep you in suspense at the moment. So, um, but don't worry. It'll be good, whatever it is. Yes. <laughs> in the meantime, though, I've been Dan. And uh, thank you, Stal. Thank you, Kirsty. Thanks, Dan. And we'll all be back, maybe together, maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> but we'll be back sometime. In the meantime, take care and enjoy Halloween. Bye now. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited Presented by Kirsty Warrow, T.D. Velasquez Stella Gaynor and Howard Whittock with Luke Richards Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com.
for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash AndNowPodcast. And now the podcast stops.